transept. And it shows, in this case, uh, Christ, the crucifixion, and Mary, and uh, John over here. And why do they call it root? Root. Root. That's right. Why do they call it root? root? I don't remember the. Uh, All right, that's your assignment. For All next right. Week. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes the holy root in a cathedral is the most dramatic, astounding thing to see when you first walk into one. Huh. <laughs> they have one in a cathedral in Meising, Germany, carved from wood. And uh, it has human hair. Oh, my God. The Christ gosh. has a human hair. What? Well, I, the, I'll see if I can find the picture. It's I just this I don't know about that either. I don't know. <laughs> I showed it to somebody once, and they said it was a bit creepy. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's my first impression. You want to see our, my, my metal shop class I do. project? I do. It's in process. Can it's I get an order? Can I yes, get an order in for one? Yeah. I want but, one. But I'm, I'm, I'm seeing just how much of a, uh, a patina I can put on. I'm going to get down to a certain point, and then I'm going to clear coat. That's fantastic. Okay, so did you make that? I did. But okay. our kids in my shop class, I can, they're going to be making these. I'm going to set up so they can make it, and they're going to learn the story of the cross and be able to share it with others. Let's <laughs> just work. What? What's this part? That that was a washer, and that that symbolizes the 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 Christ, the the Trinity Godhead, and and the circle of the of Christ. That's the Celtic cross. <clears throat> okay. Yeah, it's just my prototype. I'm going to tune it up a little. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I want it. Uh, <laughs> the kids will love to have them for sale. Yeah. Okay. Tell them they've got two. All right. <laughs> My my wife says acts two is that correct? My wife says, oh no no, want one that is nice and shiny and, and bright. And I said, okay. Not necessarily for me. No good. No. I didn't think so. I like it that way too. Yeah. yeah. I like some life. You like life. <laughs> yeah. I'm good. Yeah. I'm glad you approve because yeah. this is my chest. I really chest like it. That's a, that's a really cool endeavor. Thank you. To share with. Another generation. We reached for that. I probably wouldn't get you. I'm glad I didn't have you walked in right when you get your glass of air. This is your next assignment. I've never read them, but we'll read them. Okay. Well, what, what, I mean, the Thirty-Nine Articles are, um, they're historical documents, really. I mean, they're, they're statements of faith, but they're really, they're really participating in a conversation that's taking place in the 16th century. So you have to read them in light of that, because some of the things it says, you know, are, are not really, they're, they're addressing errors that aren't our errors anymore today. Uh-huh. And so, and so but, but they're an important part of understanding the state of the argument at the time and how we've you know, kind of gotten to where we are. Um, how do I do this now? You know, some days it's just more tasks than you <laughs> yeah. see. Yes. Some days it's like everything's done for me, and some days it's like, oh, 
I gotta be back today. Yeah. Probably, hey, yeah. God, he's moving today. Oh, today's the day. Yeah, they're moving. So he is. He was uh, asked me if I'd fill in, and which wow. is great. Uh, Where are they moving to? Lake Forest. Oh, far home, Lake Forest. Mm-hmm. Father uh, Hayden and Father family. family. We have a contingent of people from here who live in a Lake Forest, or apart from the Alberts and the Ballards live down there, and uh, the Parsons who split time between the St. Thomas and here. Right? Hmm. So now they're going to have their own, their own associate rector down there. Well, <laughs> well. Yeah. no, it's not their own actually. It's, he still belongs to everybody, but yeah, I know. he'll have in proximity. Uh, yeah. so. Thank you for clarifying. So, uh, <laughs> but that's what uh, for those who are online, we were there was discussion about Thurner. I, I think I, I read Bishop Chad's article. I don't remember the gist of it, but it it it, um, it used to be that you had to subscribe to the articles as a as a matter of faith. And that uh, not everywhere in the Anglican Communion, but a lot of it. A lot of it's just basic doctrine, but then a lot of it's it's stuff that's that's reacting against abuses that, in many ways, are now on the other side in terms of the error. So when you're dealing with things, you you know you 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 don't have um, so uh, yeah. It was helpful. Yeah. Study. So all right. <clears throat> well, let's pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed of everlasting life, which has given us our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I have agreement, right? That's amen. amen. That is an amen. Yeah. That is. <laughs> I got reprimanded on that last time. So. When you're quite in church, you know, like with prayer consecrations, like no agreement, no, 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 no assent. Stop everything. So deep into it, see, it's hard to come back out. Yeah, you have said, having in the third heaven. Yeah, no, that's true. It's like I'm trying to track the rest. Especially before that, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, man. <laughs> so we talked we, we talked last week about the ascension and so that was 10 days that was 10 days before last Sunday and then between ascension and Pentecost the disciples were waiting in this upper room and as we discussed praying which means participating in the regular Jewish round of prayers um, <laughs> we locked we locked Connie out she needs to see the drift <laughs> What's the secret did, word? Did you did you not keep your lamp burning? <laughs> That's good. That's a good one. Lots, <laughs> yeah. So we're um, so they were praying, and and again, as we mentioned, that the praying doesn't just mean sit around saying "Oh Lord." It means the Jewish tradition had a. A framework of prayer. We see it in Acts with St. Peter and Cornelius. There are prayers morning, noon, and night. And they, that means they continue in those prayers. It doesn't mean they didn't have other prayers, but, but that's what, the, that's what it meant is they lived as a community in prayer in that room. You know, obviously we're not, got some food and stuff like that. They didn't never leave the room, 
but they were waiting in that space for God to do something, which is to send the Holy Spirit. And um, so let's just jump into chapter two and, and then talk about it from there. Oh, and we also talked about how Matthias became the replacement for Judas. Why did we need a replacement? Need to be twelve. Why? Is there 12 tribes of Israel? Yeah, 12 tribes. There's got to be new Israel. We've got to have 12. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't because we have 12 months of the year, right? <laughs> well, there's a whole, you know, it might be some constellation with that and the signs of the zodiac and all that stuff. <laughs> oh, but, yeah. Well, no, there's, 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 I mean, people yeah. get into esoteric, there's, there's legitimate connection between, yeah, no you know, things like that. It's not, it's not, don't, don't go read your horoscope or anything like that. I don't mean that, but the 12, the 12 is not accidental in tribes or elsewhere to the ordering of the entire cosmos. That's, that's what I would say. So, um, in, in chapter two, it begins with when the day of Pentecost had fully come. Now, since they say when the day of Pentecost had fully come, it means it was already a day before what is about to happen happened. Mm. What was the day about? The day before or the day that... Well, no, what were they celebrating? They were gathering for the Feast of Pentecost. What was it? Isn't it the Feast of Trumpets? No, it wasn't the Feast of Trumpets. The fall... The fall. Well, it became the later on in, in tradition associated with it, <laughs> but it's not. It wasn't by the. So, so that clearly is a part of it yeah. that that they, the Jews commemorated the giving law to Moses on Mount Sinai. Yeah. Oh, okay. um, but but in terms of uh, just being being a biblical feast of in terms agricultural terms, yes. what was it? Connie. Oh, <laughs> it was a harvest, but I, I'm forgetting the name of. It. So let me read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 16. Okay. Um, verse, well, all, uh, chapter 16 reviews all the feasts. It's a good place to go to. I think Leviticus 23 is the other place it does. But it first talks about the Passover and the, and the, the feast of the first fruits where you bring the first fruits to the temple. That was in the context of Passover. Then verse 9 says, you shall count seven weeks for yourself. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the grain. Then you should keep the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God with a tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord God blesses you. Hmm. Let me see what that, I'm curious now that I went that far with it. Seven um, weeks is 49 days. So we sell 49 days, so 50, it's really the 50th, you add a day. Maybe you, you have a day, then you count 49 more days, mm-hmm. and you're at the day. So in other words, <laughs> right, if, right. if the first fruits is a day, uh-huh. that's day one. So uh, it's the 50th day, but it's 49 days after. Yeah. I think that's my story. I'm sticking with it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Draw, draw a diagram. Yeah. And then, yeah, yes, uh, I, I, you know, I mean, there's a diagram there. That put, put, they, they got into math, so I put my, put my diagram <laughs> Actually, it, it, it's in the same value of okay. my art. Oh, it's England. So here, here's what. Um, so that was from um, Deuteronomy 16. Here is from Leviticus 23, verse 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. There's that word. Then, and you shall count for yourself 
from the day after the Sabbath, from that, that day, you brought the sheaf of wave, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Mm-hmm. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be a fine flour to be baked with leaven. They are first fruits to the Lord. So what, what we're, I think we're dealing with here, I, I actually picked up a little something here because I've never really studied the, the agriculture of the thing. But the first fruits apparently was the barley harvest, which, which so you have barley and barley loaves here. The wheat harvest, they had wheat, apparently was a little bit later. So maybe by the time they're doing this, this finished loaf of barley, the wheat harvest might be beginning. So it's overlapped, but it's mainly the barley harvest. So I, forgive me for being an uh, attention to detail, but what you read in Leviticus was 50th day after that feast. I, th- I think it meant I think it meant to be a, a Sabbath also for you know so on the 50th day so Sabbath to Sabbath just like just like we translated then uh, Lord's Day to you know the the 50th day which is which is Pentecost um, and it, it moves it forward in time a little bit um, so so when, excuse me, so when you ask next time. <laughs> yeah, when you ask next time, let's get this straight. <laughs> what were they celebrating? Do we say Feast of Weeks? Or what do we call well, it? I would say they're celebrating a har- the Harvest Festival, the harvest that whereas festival. On, on, on Passover, which was the first fruits, they took a sheaf of grain off the plant and waved it. Now, 50 days after, they're saying, make a loaf of bread with your finished product and bring two loaves. So that's that's what. So I, I was more. I wasn't so caught up in the terminology as to what it was that they that they understood it to be doing. I was just curious what they called it. Yeah. You know what they call it. Now, can we see? Pentecost. Well, I mean, again, fiftieth day. Uh, of course, Pentecost is is Greek. So that I, now it's interesting. I, I I haven't done this work either. I go look in the Septuagint translation to see if. If there's a, the word Pentecost in that, but um, now what is the connection then? <laughs> Here we go between the resurrection of Jesus, mm-hmm. who is, as we re- read about in First Corinthians, the first fruits, mm-hmm. and Pentecost mm-hmm. in relation to the Holy Spirit coming upon the whole church. Are you speaking about days? Because it was How does the movement from one sheaf of grain to two finished loaves relate to the movement from the resurrection of Jesus to the Holy Spirit on the community? The first fruits. Yeah, he's the first fruits. Right, he, and he's the first. He's the and first the born. Spirit make the, the bread of heaven? What was? What does the Spirit make the church then? The body. Of the Christ. body. Well, the, the kind of finished loaf. This is the fullness. He is the first fruits yeah. that, 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 you know, when, when you're waving a sheaf of grain in the temple on Passover, um, you're not really excited that you have this thing you can't do anything with. It's giving you the promise that eventually you can get some bread. Okay, and he's the bread of life. And so he is the first fruits, which we're happy about, but it's the promise that we also are going to rise. Ah, 
as bread wow. rises. And so, and so, um, the resurrection then is 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 really interpreted in two ways in the New Testament. There is at the end of time when the trumpet sounds, the dead are raised. But there's also what's the first resurrection in the New Testament? Well, the first resurrection was Christ. Yeah. Well, our first resurrection. Revelation says, okay, this is the second resurrection, and the, 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 he says, blessed are those crucified in the first resurrection, because over them the second death has no right. Yeah. Our yeah. baptism coming to the right. The means by which we get the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so if we get the Holy Spirit, we were, and, and remember that language, that it permeates the New Testament everywhere it talks about baptism. Don't you know that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Bear with him to baptism into death, like as he was raised, so we might live. So the Spirit raises us from lives caught up in, in the old creation, feudal ending in death. They bring us into the new creation where we've risen with him, we're already alive, and therefore what we do has an eternal dimension to it. This is why we can labor and labor doesn't go away. Our works follow us mm -hmm. because because they're done in the spirit in a life that doesn't end. So, whereas life, whereas um, work according to the natural plane of life apart from Christ yeah. is life in a fallen, it's life and death. It's death. It's the condition of death. That's life changing stuff. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's really cool. It's the concept. Okay. So, the day of Pesca before you come. So, it's the 50th day now. <laughs> yeah, Jack, Jack, we're, we're saying that means uh, 50 days from the day of, but, but, 40, but 49 days after. Either 49 or 51. <laughs> this is where most theological discussions uh, uh, get sidetracked yeah. because yes. Um, yes. what yes. happens is that people go off of the obscure point no one can solve and therefore yeah. miss the, the main point. That, yeah. So we engineers get in the way. Well, you don't get in the way when with the yeah, wrong the details, but if, if if you forget what you're making the thing for, yeah, right? Yeah. Right. But I, I like the concept of bread rising yeah, as Christ bread rose. How about that? Yeah. The bread of and life. He's the bread of life. And That's cool. It makes sense. Mm. That's beautiful. So when the day of Pentecost, uh, in our Acts chapter okay, two, verse one, okay. had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. That meant continuing in prayer without dissent. It doesn't mean they didn't argue over what they have to dinner or <laughs> didn't annoy each other. It meant that they were committed to being ahead. The important thing about that is I, I, we're going to read in Acts. We get think we might do the verse chapter. You know, they're all had everything in common. They're all just getting along. And I don't think that means they didn't like get irritated by right. each other. Right. The, the unity is we're committed to a common right. faith and we're committed to working out together in community. So even when I'm mad at you or you're mad at me, there's a commitment. Okay, how do, how are we supposed to deal with this? Yeah. And so unity all with one accord in one place doesn't mean they're just singing kumbaya like some kind of, you know, cultic thing, like we're not going to look, pay attention to any bad things. But it, it does mean that I'm not going to allow my personal thing to undermine the whole thing. So with one accord in one place. And what, the liturgy really helps us with that because when we're participating together in liturgy, we're one. 
we're facing, we're commencing the same things, we're praising with one, and it, it makes us something that if we all just stood up and said it was on our mind, it might not yeah. be. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> Thank goodness for liturgy. So verse 2, suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. It sounds like when it doesn't say it is a wind, it says it sounds like sounds, a rushing mighty wind. Yes, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Wow, okay. Now, um, I'll just finish the section and we'll unpack the whole thing. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. There's a lot of significant um, images there. First of all, wind. Um, what do we know? What do we know anything about the Hebrew word for winds relates to the Hebrew word? And I should say, and breath. I should say, as, as it carries over in correspondence in Greek as well. It's the same for spirit. Yeah. So the the, 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 the ruach of God could be. That's that's really the, the big translation problem. For example, in Ezekiel 37, the great resurrection passage, where where he says, uh, you know, enter the breath and the wind and the spirit is, it's entirely a translation decision as to whether you translate it as wind or breath or spirit, because it's the same word. Mm. So um, so when the wind comes in, uh, it, it, could, it could also... Um, you know, it's it's a it's a word and concept that also speaks of the spirit in the biblical languages. So they 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 came in and filled the house. Then there, then the interesting thing here is then there appeared then divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. Now this is this fire imagery is another image which is interesting. Well, where's this fire image come from? I think it's Go ahead. I have no idea. Oh, I no. think of John the Baptist. Okay. It's about you baptizing with water and with fire. Well, it's, pursue this here. Yeah, you'll baptize with the fire that does not consume. Yeah. Now let's let's think about the Old Testament here. Yeah, you bet. In regard to the Holy Spirit, Moses accepting sacrifices. Did the sacrifice ever get consumed? Yeah, with fire. By fire. So what do we think that might be an image of? Holy, Holy Spirit. Mm. Oh. Fire. The fire of God came down and consumed the burnt offering. Right. The I burning bush. Yeah, that's what it was referring to. Burning the burning bush, bush. Yeah. Now, now, so we're going to, let's stay with this concept because I think you're on the right track with the fire that burns and doesn't consume. I just want to make the point that the fire of God sometimes burns and does consume. Yes. <laughs> yes. And there's and there's a yes. um, uh, I'm not I'm not really a, a, a that well versed in T. S. Eliot, but the one Pentecost section he has on this is really good, where he says the um, I should have I didn't I just came to think of it, but um, uh, the dove descends with flame of incandescent splendor. And he goes on to 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 talk about uh, the fire that that burns. Uh, we, and it, the closing line is: uh, "We only live, we only suspire 
to be consumed by fire or fire. Either. Mm. And, and another thing about this is, is that the word, uh, well, one possible meaning of the word seraphim in, in, in its derivation is burning creature. Really? Mm-hmm. Creatures that are alive with, with, the, with the fire of God. And in a, in a place, in a, in a sense that's life-giving, what, um, what are some images of fire that, that maybe think we think of fire, not necessarily painlessly, but at least in a positive way? Like, for example, in regard to metal. Yeah, the, the purifying, and that's and we um we have this hymn that we will sing. We sang and we'll sing again at Drew's ordination. Oh, let it freely burn till mm-hmm. earthly passions turn to dust and ashes in its seat consuming. Yeah. Um, so refiner's fire, refiner's fire, like a fire, fire to fuller soap. Yeah. Um. So. I think the image of fire gives us a distinctly sacrificial image. Yeah. That and but it's the image of the living sacrifice. It's the same image when we, when we read Revelation and see Jesus as the Lamb, as though it had been slain. Because mm-hmm. it's only as though because he's walking around, mm-hmm. but he's got the marks of death. Mm-hmm. And so this is where we we offer we present ourselves to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice that the more the Spirit fills us, it consumes what is bad, but there's a life that, that, that makes it through. And so this is some of the theology, actually, of, of, of the lake of fire at the end of Revelation is that it's, it's um, not so much, I mean, a potential take on this. It's not so much that God says, I'm going to throw you away and burn you. It's that when the fullness of God's presence is revealed, there's only, if you're not, if you don't have the life that can exist in his presence, it will consume you. And it will be like you're on the edge because you can't be there. C.S. Lewis picks this up in a, um, you know, in a, in a more felicitous way in The Great Divorce, where he, he points out that the unredeemed cannot get to the mountain. Mm-hmm. They can't walk on the grass. They can't until we become people who are fit to live right. there. And that's part of what's happening in the whole work of redemption with the Spirit is that we're being prepared. We are a uh, habitation for God in the Spirit, but but as we talked about in church today, the, the, the presence grows as we surrender to it and let it uh, and yield to it more and more. And, and so ask for it. And yeah. ask for it. Yeah. So um, it reminds me of, is it in Hebrews where it says our God is a consuming fire? Um, yeah, he's, yeah. Well, that's, and he kind of, in this Hebrews passage is very interesting because um, he, he says, uh, he says in Hebrews also that you haven't come to the mountain that got consumed with smoke. That's where Moses first got the commandments and God got to gather them around. God came down with this, it's it, in, in a kind of frightening way. People say, no, don't, don't, uh, don't. And, and we're, we haven't come to that mountain. We've come to the mountain we, we can actually approach. And, and this is one of, this is a distinction between if we, if we, it's really, I think, significant to meditate upon the image of Old Testament worship as it's fulfilled. In the Old Testament, you have the Holy of Holies where God lived. 
No one could go there. People went there the wrong way. They died. Yeah. Like two sons of Aaron yeah. decided they'd just skip, skip, skip a step mm-hmm. and end up mm-hmm. dead. Or like the two guys who tried to grab the cart yeah. didn't work out so well. Yeah. You know, wow, the guys don't win. I told you. Well, the problem is not those. The problem is you carry the cart between two. You carry the ark between two poles, not on a new cart. <laughs> All right. But only the priest could go behind there, only in the particular way that God said. But now we can go right in. Now this, but but this idea of spirit and fire. We have life that allows us to approach, but the fire purifies us, kind of gets at these poles of the spiritual life, which is intimacy, closeness, friendship with God, Mm -hmm. purifying, ongoing repentance. All all those things are always together. Um, And it's why that in our relationship with God, there's the, the proper awe. What's called the fear of God is not like, God is trying to uh, make you afraid. It's, 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 it's the proper emotion in relationship to the reality of the thing. We talk about feeling authentically. We talk about this in spiritual life. If something hurts you and you're sad and cry, that's a real emotion in relationship to the reality of the thing. If you're sad all the time about things that are sad, that's an emotional problem. And so fear of God that I, I can't, you know, I'm, I'm petrified all the time, that's an emotional problem. Mm-hmm. But understanding when we, when we approach God in, his, in the fullness of being, we see him, and we're both able to come, but we understand this is something significant, yes. it's both purifying and attracting. We're drawn in, yeah, right. and we're called... Uh, Such a privilege. Like a it's moth like, to the fire. Yeah. Hope not. No. I think it's something that That's actually uh, really Pope, Pope John Paul II, in his book on, on the Incarnation, talked about the Islamic objection historically being to the Incarnation is God's too close. Wow. 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 And I think that's the, he's too no, close. You got you, you gotta, you gotta push him away. This is not, he's holy. You don't, you don't know him. And yet, the, but yes, the word was made flesh and dwelt amongst. And yet, mm-hmm. when you understand, this is the, Word made flesh. Almost all the Marian theology and Marian devotion to church results from a deep meditation on who Jesus is. Hmm. Like, oh, mm-hmm. so hmm. he was really God, and then he, like, for who just sort of this woman was like, <coughs> it's it's a mind-boggling thing, but it's how it's how you realize well that's pretty special, but then you realize. The point about this, it, and, 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 and Schmemann talks about this, which is significant, about, about um, the exaltation of Mary is not about Mary as, you know, it's clearly the, um, the one woman God chooses in all human history is unique and special in ways that are beyond. However, it's really... The, the pattern paradigm for all Christians. Mm-hmm. God comes to dwell within us, mm. and we're made holy. And this is what we're... So the reverence paid to there is the reverence we're really supposed to pay to everyone. We understand the, mm-hmm. the image of God that's in yeah, us. Yeah. And sometimes that that the excessive hagiography causes people to... Uh, even like excessive um, sacramental devotion right. tends to have people have this 
extreme devotion to images of things, but not be very nice to anybody you know, else. And that's, and that's the yeah. hagiography. Hagiography, that sort of saint, uh, saint word. Hagios is, is, is holy in Greek, and so that's what you call it. Mm-hmm. Is, is, it's always a balance. And so, you know, we, we're in the West, especially people coming from, you know, more Protestant evangelical traditions, <laughs> There's always this reaction against the Roman Catholic extremes right. of Mary. Uh, right. Anglicans have always been shyer, but the Anglo-Catholic tradition has always understood that. Yeah. And even and, and why we go to that, but but even but so so the idea is we don't build a lot of special extra doctrines, but yes, right. the one who bore God as as the pattern for all of us as Christ bearers is to be esteemed and honored. Um, it, 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 it's funny, too, sometimes when I, when I, uh, you, people object to that kind of stuff, and then you, you see the way they reverence their own ancestors, oh. pictures, or go to, yeah, go, yeah. To a gol- yeah. go to a country club and see the August <laughs> pictures, of, oh, <laughs> yeah, right. yes, the, or, yeah, or the, yeah, wherever yeah, it is, yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah, but yeah. they come to church, wow, that's just, uh, just, just yeah. now, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to pay any attention to that. Um, yeah. Father Hayden kind of touched on that. Um, that was so good. He said um, that God took woman out of man, but then comes, you know, then comes Mary, who who bears God. So it's it's interesting. The second Adam, which is really kind of well, and, and the interesting thing too with Christ, who is also we're told a pioneer for us. That is, we worship him, but we're supposed to do what he did. Mary gets honored. But we're supposed to follow. Yes, say, be unto me according to thy word. And so, in both cases, what is really um, the point is the humility of surrender is what makes you like Christ and what makes you follow the pattern of the incarnation, the yes of Mary in the incarnation. When you can take, you know, the, the most difficult thing God calls you to do and you say, all right. I'll get it, but I'll do it. <laughs> and that's and that's you know that's um, it's and it's it's good to personalize that because we say I'm married, young, pregnant, how hard it was, but then go. But that's way back then. Your life, what's God called you to do? It's really really hard. Like oh, he's not. You pray and it, oh, it's not going away, or it's no easy answer. There's no like oh. And what so he you, hasn't called you to do anything difficult. So you, you've, never, you've never felt the need to endure through a difficult season of time faithfully. I mean, Carol, I, I don't want to be your, you know, I'm not, you know, but I've known you long enough to know that's not true. I know our conversations, that's not true. Well, yeah, but I mean, is that enough? Or to 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 remain faithful and do what Christ calls us to do. When it would be easier to do something else, yes, that's enough. That's all. That's all we're called to. And yes, it's an uneven burden placed upon people. Some people, like, gosh, and some people, some people do some sort of skate through life. And but the point there's a there's a paradox to that though that I, I just causes I just think we have to think about that. Um, You'll discover that your greatest challenges, when they're endured in prayer 
and allowed as, as an opportunity to invite Christ into your life. Because Christ said he'll be with you in it. He didn't say it'll always take it away. So it can become a means of growth. That usually is, those are usually areas where we sometimes we grow most profoundly in faith. And I don't really know anybody whose faith is very deep who hasn't suffered some. Get different measures. But that's, so paradoxically. I guess comparatively speaking. Well, don't compare. Okay. Just, just live your life. Okay. Okay. But I mean, I, I get these things in the mail. We all do. Of the Jews that are suffering, and please send money. Uh, but, yeah. but let's but let's 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 stop for a minute. Let's okay. This is important, I think, because because this is a Pentecost study. Um, We're talking about a narrative theme of life. We're not talking about whether we Americans suffer less than the Africans. Uh, this is life in Christ. Um, the world apart from Christ is dying and they're suffering. And, and the worst suffering isn't always where they're poor and suffering. The worst is often when they're rich and ignorant because yes. they're inching towards judgment unawares. Mm -hmm. So the point for us is that I compare it to suffering is always, I mean, listen, there's always, there's nothing wrong with realizing uh, when you're going through something hard that, yeah, I, you know, to realize others have done more serious stuff. Uh, but that's not, but God is calling you to do what he's calling you to do and to be faithful in that. You know, that's just to live a, that's just to be, Ordinary faith, ordinarily faithful and generous in a life that has a lot of good in it. Okay, that's your call. Just do it. And his whole life, you know, that's that comparative stuff is always pride. There's no comparative stuff. Always, yeah. or always, um, and it also doesn't. It doesn't. Um, it also privileges, as our world does so much, the, um, the 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 status of material comfort, because we assess, and this this is actually a problem. That I, I I see with a lot of our prayers, uh, sometimes when we're only praying for material relief, healing, whatever it is, that yet we want to pray for those things. God isn't concerned about those things. But the bigger thing is, as you wrestle with that, what's God doing in your life? How are you learning to depend upon Him more? How are you growing? That's the narrative of faith. And if we're only looking at you know, they've got stuff, we don't have stuff, or we have stuff, they don't have stuff, we're lucky, they're not lucky. Um, sometimes that's simply not true. Sometimes in those poor places, there's a tremendous richness in faith, as James says. He's chosen the poor of the world to be rich in faith. And when we get there, and we understand that last will be first and the first last, and some of those people are saying, oh, poor them, we're thinking we're, we're now in, in space of, of serving them, uh, we'll, we'll be more aware of the reality of the thing. So we have, we have to, what we really need to do is bring our, our view of life more into the narrative of faith, that we're always looking at what we're going through through the lens of our life in Christ. So when we have something we're struggling with, it is, how is Christ working in my life? How am I learning through this? Yes, of course we pray for the thing to be relieved. But a lot of times the way prayer works is he will do his work in us when we get to a place where now we're ready to receive thing. But the work in us, preparing us through the Holy Spirit, purifying us, is the more important work. And if all of our prayers only and always for 
make the thing go away, give me the reward, and we never be aware of how am I learning to trust God more, how am I growing in my faith, how is my prayer life deepening through this. We're missing the central theme of the Christian life. And so that's that's the thing that that um, that because that's the narrative we're always dying and rising with Christ. And the benefit of, of, of whatever level of affliction we have, whether it be um, really light and momentary, in Christian's words, or only relatively light and momentary in light of the ultimate reward, um, it, it can always serve to dislodge us from this world. Dislodge us from this world is the end point and living in the kingdom now, and assessing our, our lives in terms of how we're moving forward in the kingdom, not how we're moving forward in the world. I would say the primary um, problem I, I see, it's my opinion, so I will, I, will, I will put it this, is in our culture and faith is that people connected the story of the kingdom, the narrative of the kingdom, too closely with other narratives, whether they be American prosperity, whether it be American politics, whatever it is. And so they're we're doing this thing, but it's it's it, it's gonna get me this. Yeah. And and the dislodging of the, the separating of the narrative of faith and the story of faith and, and the time, living in the time of faith from the time and story of the world is very, very important for Christian growth. And it was it's happening to the church now anyway, because we, we it's it's you know the the the, um, the Western sense of Christendom is gone. If you don't think it's gone, if you still want to fight a culture war, good luck with that. I'm telling you, it's done. The barbarians are at the gates of Rome, and now is the time of rebuilding the church and bearing witness in the in the coming age where we rule, where the barbarians are in charge. Now, in the history of the church, the barbarians were all converted, became Christians, and so it, so the church never said, "Oh, but it's 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 it's," um, and this is part of the consequence for too close a connection of 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 the world with the narrative of faith. And, and uh, it's what the bar- barbarians saw in these Christians as well. Yeah, because they they stayed and they didn't. Yeah, they didn't. You know, and, and so it's 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 interesting. Um, it's a purifying fire of do we with you know life in Christ is great when being a Christian you know all the. You know, make lots business connection to church, good place to be. Now, when, oh, having a Christian view, you might be called out in your company because you're not, you don't believe, you know, do you, do you, don't you have the right politically correct stance on this thing? Don't you, do, do you, you know, these are real things that people really face now. And, yeah. and, and, they, and so do we, do, can we bear witness when it hurts? That's the question. That's that's the challenge of our time now, um, that we we will continually face. A lot of Christians became Christians when in the generation after Constantine. Good thing you got converted and all that stuff because all of a sudden it helped you at work. You're, you're the same religion as as the as the emperor. Yeah, okay. Convert from paganism for that. But a hundred years before. When, when being Christian got you killed, not as many people were coming to the Sunday Eucharist and looking for baptism. 
I think people today, they're not going to kill us, but they tend to think we're stupid. Well, they thought the Christians were stupid, too. The first Christians were with all the same things. So we'll get back in the chapter. I just want to, this is important because that's the world these people went out into. It's different than the three century later Constantine world. But they went into a world where everybody thought they were stupid. They were all poor people relative to the people who were in power. It was the same kind of thing. And that's the identity we have to be comfortable with. And we don't need anybody to think anybody because we are the body of Christ. We can live in the world as we are. That's the idea of witness. But it's going to be in a place where the two things are important. One, that it's not going to get us an attaboy. And it'll probably get opposition. And we should still be joyous in Christ no matter what. That's what really characterized Christians. They had a life that the barbarians couldn't touch. And this is the problem when narratives get intertwined is their life can be touched by temporal defeat. And they're all upset. There can be no joy because we didn't, whatever it was, didn't get. Any thoughts about that? I talked for a long time. It's kind of an opinion piece. So feel free to. I find I come in here and I'm feeling certain things and I'm observing certain things and you talk about it. I'll forward you an article that Adeline forwarded me from Peter Leithart. That's what seems hot because he was, he was, so just remind me, I'll forward to the group about just our time. Peter Leithart, he's a theologian who's written a few different things that are fairly, you know, he actually commentary on Revelation. He's got a book called The Elements of the World. It's a big, thick study about what St. Paul means when he says the stoicheia to cosmu, which is always going to be burned up. What's that mean? So anyway, but he was talking about, yeah, the metaphorical connection with where we are and the overrunning of Rome by the barbarians and the fact that he talked about Pentecost. There's always the spirit. There's always the witness. God's work isn't done, but there definitely is being some purifying and some renewing and refining. So you brought it up, so I'm going to ask you at the end when the when Christ, before Christ comes again, or at the same time Christ's second coming, the earth will be burned up. Is that a purifying statement? I don't think that's what the um, the elements being mellowed with fervent heat means. And Lightheart actually, his book, it's not, a, don't go get it because it's not a simple read. It's a study <laughs> like this. But you can send us the... But, it, but what it means, what it, what, he, what it means when it talks about... It's also what is meant by the imagery in Revelation of the trees being burned up and all these things. I mean, I don't mean that if there's some kind of war, there isn't actually some physical destruction, but it means that um, what Revelation and that elemental language is, 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 is working in is the, is the language of, of old and new creation. Mm-hmm. And and the, the 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 elements of the world are the way a culture, the way the world is conceived of, of the interaction heaven and earth. So the elements of Jewish civilization were centered in the temple. You the liturgy mm-hmm. by which heaven and earth came together through the rites of that. Um, when the Lord came in judgment on Jerusalem. 
Jesus, as you said he would, the, those elements were burnt up. It didn't mean everything was, Literally. it wasn't, but, but it, that old world passed away, and a new heavens and new earth came in that we see in um, Revelation, mm -hmm. where we are now seated in heavenly places, we're already living in this new creation, these new elements. So it doesn't, the 20th century modern materialists, even, even Christians who tend towards that, when you take it literally, I don't understand the yeah. setting for that language. It means something more than, than just mere physical destruction. It always means there's always a representative function of, of element and, and God's presence. Well, what keeps coming to my mind is, like I don't know, it's a little off, but it's like the, the three holy children and... Christ comes into the fire with them, and they're not consumed, and they don't even smell like fire. And I just see how, like, Christ could have been the one that kept the fire, like, made up for whatever was impure in them or whatever, and purified them because they had to face death to go into that. So mm -hmm. Cheryl, if everyone's yeah. familiar with them, the image she's bringing up, it's, it's an apocryphal book called The Song of the Three Children, which is um, purported to be... The uh, from Daniel, the book of Daniel, which is a biblical book, where Daniel's three friends, because they won't um, bow to the bow to the, uh, the Daniel, yeah, Daniel didn't stop praying; they wouldn't bow. Yeah, I uh, got thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Is that Meshach? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And when they're in the fire, um, a song is put on. Now the song is put on their mouth is our morning prayer, Benedictus S. Mm. Oh. So that's what praying morning prayer. I want to make that instruction sometime. Mm. Say that that we're praying this in the midst of the fire of life, you know, plus our really cool. God of our fathers. And also the Benedicity that follows that is also from the Song of the Three Children. Mm. Praise of all creation. Mm. Because really they're cool. because they've been thrown in the fire, but one like the Son of God is seen in there with them and they're not burned and they come out unscathed through the fire. So it's very much an image of Pentecost, the fire descending, purifying, but not. And, it, and how, how to purify them? Well, we saw that their faith was real. Yeah. 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 They could, they, like could, they could get out, out of the fire if they weren't going to do that, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't give that up. Okay. Close in prayer, then. <laughs> 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 that was a lot of stuff. But the main thing we the main thing we think of, of in that first section going, you know, is is that wind and fire. Wind of the spirit and fire are purifying two images Holy Spirit are combined there. Um But then it, it also, the fire divided, now this is interesting, the fire divided and sat on each one, which gives the, um, the also the imagery that comes with the New Testament is that the one spirit is given in measure to each person. So that, that this, um, the spirit does become less one, but there's multiple. Yeah, any more than God being three persons is less one. <laughs> the thing. And 
they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So we need to be clear about this miracle of speaking in tongues from what follows, um, that there is a, a gift of speaking in tongues, which St. Paul referred to as the, in 1 Corinthians 13, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. He's referring to the idea that the Pentecostal tongues were the tongues of men, but there's another gift of speaking in tongues, which he converses to the tongue of angels, where you're speaking a language that no one knows. Yeah. And that's a legitimate gift uh, that certainly has been, um, you know, misused, emphasized. Yeah, emphasized or, but there are plenty of people in our in our movement who have been uh, the, um, for example, the uh, bishop who came to teach us schools of prayer in the 1990s, John Charles, was a man of spoken tongues. My my friend and mentor, Bishop Cahoon, uh, had met Dennis Bennett, who started the charismatic oh, yeah. thing in, in the seminary. He's, he was, he spoke in tongues. Um, they mostly did it as a private prayer language thing. But this is not that. This is, but jo John Charles did say once that he was, he was um, called to speak between a, um, before a, a group of nuns somewhere in France, and that when they were done, he, they were like said, you just spoke to us in perfect French. Mm -hmm. Oh my! So he said that. I heard him say that. I don't have any. I I, I don't can't verify it. But he's but and he was a he was a very um, um, if you uh, if you ever go to Archbishop Haverland's blog, you can find it. He has a, he had wrote a little bit on John Charles who passed away a little while back. But he was a funny. He always had stories. Stories always that were so funny. But he knew like he was well connected in the Church of England. Knew the Queen. Was Bishop of Polynesia. Wow. Yeah, but he was wow. very humble. He just, he just, so, but he, but this is, my point is of speaking in tongues, but that doesn't mean everybody who's rolling in the aisles in a church makes it <laughs> legit, legitimate. Just, everything needs to be discerned. And doesn't it say somewhere that it, it doesn't do any good to speak in tongues if there's not someone there to interpret? It doesn't do the community any good right. to yeah. speak in tongues if there's not someone interpreting. It may do you good. Like in Romans, it says the Spirit intercedes with, with words beyond, you know, we, we don't yeah. know. It's like, okay, pray for me because I don't even know what to pray for. But if I'm doing that on my own, I'm benefiting from that kind of intercession. But if I start praying here like that, you know, let me like, how about some Bible study? <laughs> <laughs> That's what St. Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 14. We don't understand French. <laughs> that, 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 you, that in the community, if, if there's not someone to interpret what is said, then don't do it. it. Usually in mature communities, I've discovered, this means that most people who have this gift understand it's mostly a personal prayer gift. They exercise it on their own. But it's, very, it's very difficult to turn it into something communally edifying over the long term. Mm -hmm. Even what happens, like people say, like, oh, they spoke in tongues, I will say, well, what did they say? And the interpreter said, well, God loves you. Well, we, we could have yeah. had someone yeah. give us a sermon working out that theme a little bit more, you know, than just, we didn't need all that so much. Um, <laughs> all right, so let's, let's read a little more there. So, But we have there the individual measure of the spirit that we each get, and I think that's a significant thing. Verse 5, and there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. Now, Pentecost was one of the three feasts, which were Passover, Pentecost, 
and uh, Sukkot or Tabernacles at the end of the year that every Jewish male was supposed to attend. Um, and so this is why they're devout men there, because if you were devout, you'd be here. If you weren't devout, <laughs> you're not there. Yeah, you're, if you're not there, you're not devout. You're, you're, so, um, but maybe because obviously God knew that this was going to happen. You know what I mean? If every devout Jew would come, every male was there, then they could all receive the Holy Spirit and bring it back to their families. Everyone could be converted. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that. The early mission churches going back like that, no question. For every nation under heaven. Now, obviously, it's under heaven. That's of the known nations that they, you know, yeah. the, the world right. was seen to be smaller then. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused. Because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Mm-hmm. These guys are Galileans, they're not, you know. Yeah, that, right. that, they weren't. Uh, <laughs> they they were. They, oh, yeah, they say it. Then they were all amazed <laughs> and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? Mm-hmm. So they'd already, that's one way we see the Christian community was not highest, highly esteemed. Right. Mm-hmm. right. And how is it that we hear each in our own language which we are born, Parthians and Medes, Elamites? Those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene. It's always fun, like in a seminary, when this happens to be the evening prayer reading and someone has not looked at it ahead of time. Oh, yeah. It's always fun to, yeah. to get their pronunciations down. Uh, you, can, you can have all kinds of. Uh, Cappadocia. Uh, <laughs> Visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. So if we got a map, it would just it would kind of be around that ancient Mediterranean world and beyond. I do have a map in my Bible, and it's got all these arrows. Oh, I love that. I love that. I'll draw it next time. Yeah, we'll get a map. I mean, that was that was that was really helpful too for all of us. But I because I, I, I was like right, when I write a diagram, it looks like that. It makes perfect sense to me, right? Oh, did you draw that? Okay. So, um, but uh, Cretans, we hear them speaking in our own tongues and wonderful works. Of so, based on this, if if someone today would speak in tongues in a congregation, and yet. You know, an unknown tongue, and but we all could understand it. Then that that would be of the spirit, perhaps. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. As opposed to one person just speaking in tongues and there's no interpreter. If everybody interpreted and could understand, they would say, "Yeah, the normal tongue." Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I met a guy that said he was speaking with this guy who came to know about. He wanted to come to know about God and Jesus and. So he was speaking to him just like that in English. And he's like, when did you learn Portuguese? You're speaking perfect Portuguese. Ah. And wow. he's like, I don't, I'm not, I'm speaking English. Yeah, there you go. But this guy that was teaching him trusted that the Holy Spirit could translate, could speak through him to this man. Uh-huh. And all of a sudden it turned into like what you were saying. I think that um, also the, the, the way that Spirit will tend to manifest in whatever the mission setting may be, mm-hmm. very be specific to it. Obviously, right. Right. the gift of tongues is very significant 
in a multicultural yeah. gathering of yeah. different people yeah. speaking tongues as a way to communicate the message. Um, there's also another aspect that's very significant. So where, what, what's the other um, significant story in the Bible, the Old Testament, that talks about languages? Babel. 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 Okay. So what Babel, happened? Then? Not what happened Babel, then? but Babel. What happened? Babel. <laughs> there was confusion. So what, what, why was there? So remember what said. What caused the confusion? What? But what did they, they say? Well, they were saying to reach God yeah. on their themselves, and so God yeah. caused them to be confused, <laughs> confuse the language, so and means. and so they were scattered because yeah. they. Um, so all the arrows would be going out. Yeah. It, 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 it also, um, I mean, there's a lot of theology in that, too, that kind of relates to what we're seeing here in that they attempted to create a unity, mm. but on their own human terms right. that they could not pull off, which is a continual human enterprise. Right? We're going to do this. But then what breaks it down? Well, I, you're not doing what I want. You're not what I want. There's, not, there's no principle by which the unity can be um, accomplished. So what it typically gets to be is unity is language used by people who want to control others, yeah. get them under the control, and then they can manipulate them with the power they now have over them. Um, so they don't, you can't ever quite accomplish what it means to accomplish. But whereas Babel scattered, they attempted unity and were scattered so they couldn't really talk to each other. Now, in Christ, there's this undoing of the Babel where all the languages are brought back together in one and everyone can speak together uh, the works of God. And that's a significant image there. But the yes. unity is in Christ. And it's really problematic for, hum for Christians to buy into human attempts at making the world one. Christ has redeemed the world, and only as its prince will it become one. So let's finish up this, and we'll, we'll pick up next week. Um, so they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what could this mean? Others mocking said, they're full of new wine. <laughs> they always think we're drunk. <laughs> and not with old wine. So I also want to uh, highlight something, uh, a couple points. There. So we read on here a couple things I've saved for next week. Um, uh, there's a passage from Joel here. If you have cross-references, oh, yeah. uh, I can send out some of those in your Bibles. That um, the, This is the Joel uh, 2.28-32. through 32. Uh, You can look at that passage. And um, he will also go on to, to talk about Psalm 16. So Joel, Joel 2.28 and Psalm 16 are going to be texts that Peter uses to explain what's happening here. And they, we'll take a look at those. Um, but we've had a phenomenon now, the spirit has fallen. And now Peter's going to explain what's happened. Um, there's something significant about this, just a closing point about how people come to faith. It is usually by virtue of some experience, mm -hmm. which then opens up to someone saying, what just happened? It is why apologetics alone does not tend to create a lot of conversions. Let me issue this. It's like people have to see, and that's what is this? Uh, we'll see that. So um, 
this is why we, we really want to try to draw people in. We want to draw them into, let me introduce you to God, pray for you. And even coming to the community that I experience something of God's presence, they haven't experienced relationship to people. Like, oh, what is this? Well, here's our class. You can, we'll tell you what this is about. Okay, then they'll, because theology explains the experience. And here's this experience of Pentecost. The full explanation of this experience comes 300 years later in the Nicene Creed. All right, we'll stop. We'll pick up uh, next week at verse 14 in Peter's Pentecostal sermon. Let us pray. Lord, bless us and keep us. Lord, make his face to shine upon us. Be gracious unto us. The Lord, lift up his countenance upon us. Give us peace this day and forevermore. Amen. That was great. Good with everyone. Elizabeth, Jim, Phyllis, Craig, I think, was on there with us, too. You got those, too. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I don't know. I'm supposed to be a tree guy.